Welcome to Two Marines in Kiev. All right, now we got two of us sitting in downtown Kiev uh, on April 7th. Uh, next to me is Colonel Andy Milburn, former Raider Regiment Commander, CO, Deputy Soxent, led the attack and counterattack against ISIS in 2016. He's currently in Ukraine as the CEO of the Mozart Group, inflicting pain on uh, on Russians and... and Indirectly. Indirect pain. In, indirectly. <laughs> politely. Inflicting pain on, on Russians. Uh, who might have it other ways. And this is uh, this is Andy Bain sitting next to me, also retired Marine Colonel, has lived in Ukraine for about 31 years. I used to be a lava dog like myself, right? I just realized I was, there is... I started off in 1-3. Yeah, 1-3. Yeah, that is a shaded area on the Venn diagram. He is a, uh, he is a successful businessman, entrepreneur, purveyor of fine wines, is given to uh, long walks uh, around the opera house. And... When the war in the Ukraine kicked off, sorry, Ukraine kicked off in 2014, Andy manned the pumps and formed a non-governmental organization called the Ukraine Freedom Fund, which really is focused on enabling the Ukraine military to do those things that it needs to do short of killing people. Is that a fair thing to say? Pretty much. We do equipment. We do uh, support to the military. Uh, we start to drones, I might add. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no. So, I mean, because non-armed drones. We're, do, be, we're doing helmets, we're doing body armor, we're doing uh, socks, first aid kits, uh, drones. What about training, Andy? We'll, we'll help with medical training when it fits, but there are a lot of people doing that. So, you know, we're all about everyone should be a volunteer and there's a Ukraine Freedom Fund, but there's a lot of other groups that are out there volunteering in the humanitarian space and the medical space. And we're more interested in everyone volunteering and promoting volunteerism than in touting our own horn or, or our own metrics. But I think that what I like working with you, apart from your uh, amazing history as a 1-3 Marine, but uh, is is working, is having, a, being able to fill the training need that uh, normal charities can't fill. And so being able to work alongside and see you give a little edge to the Ukrainian army is outstanding. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's a synergy, right, that has evolved and is working very well and legally, I might add, um, uh, because... It, so many things, uh, you can build a, a tremendous amount of capacity in the Ukraine military, um, through the Ukraine Freedom Fund. And I mean, across the board, you know, even, uh, uh, you know, as we, we talked about medical training or operation of drones, all, all those things that, uh, uh, they need to, to do and, and the stuff that keeps them protected. And as far as, uh, you know, body armor, helmets, um, you name it. But, uh, for, yeah, for anything, for training, requirements, anything that involves handling of weapons or shooting of weapons or things that can harm people, uh, that makes me sound awful. That makes me sound like a... a well, a, I, I'm, I'm more of the philosophy that if a wolf's coming at your house, I'd rather shoot him uh, before he gets there. In, we're doing this in good conscience and, and uh, because it is a defensive war, um, we, actually it needs to be Needs to be an offensive war soon, but um, th it's strategically it's a defensive war. I mean, the, the goals of the Ukrainian military... Are, are worthy in the sense all they're seeking to do is to expel Russians from their territory. So anything that enables them to do that and doesn't violate the law of armed conflict is something that we enable them to do. And last thing I'll say, because I see Andy poised waiting to jump in, uh, but rather than do random acts of training across the board, we focus on specific capabilities uh, that we know that they're most in need of. And, and uh, actually, funnily enough, medical training is one of those. Um, but, but you name it, I mean, everything from 
um, MALT, what we call MALT, uh, military operations in urban terrain, to patrolling, basic movement skills, uh, shooting, of course, and shooting not just their own personal weapons, anti-tank, guarded missiles, and and the operation of drones. Now, well, I think what's interesting is you brought out, you, you, you've obviously been out here now a while, and you brought out some of the some top SF trainers uh, to assess what they need and what they don't need and where where the weaknesses are. And, and I think a lot of it, what you identified is a need for standardization and kind of a syllabus as to yeah. here's here's tactical doctrine, squad level tactics, yeah. which they don't have. And and yeah, they have the Territorial Defense Force, which was only started January first and really only stood up February twenty fourth was the recruitment campaign. My company actually launched the recruitment campaign the morning of February twenty fourth. And we were supposed to get 130,000 recruits within two months. We had 10 times that amount within two days. It was the most successful advertising campaign ever. Uh, it did. The Russians did help with that, though. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, I, but none of these guys have any training, and they have they have weapons and they have heart, but they need they need basic squad tactics. I showed you you sent me that that Ranger book squad tactics, and I gave it to a, an employee of mine who's now a TDF squad leader, and he's like, "Wow, this is fantastic!" Can I show it to my officers? And uh, yeah, naturally, but it's. I think you're doing a great job figuring out what they need and then having to standardize it. Yeah, because, you, you know, what? Well, sadly, I think, I mean, we, we both agree this war is going to last a while, but even if it wasn't, I mean, regardless, so our goal is to build a sustainable capability, and that's more than just a, you know, a buzz phrase. I mean, you, wherever possible, you focus on train the trainer. I mean, you get everyone the basic level of skills, but you have to ensure that going ahead, they can do, you know, their own training of their own personnel. And then you have specific capabilities that are, you know, regarded as critical in any Western army, such as, you know, medical skills from the individual uh, first aid skills through combat lifesaver to actual medic or corpsman. And the, I think it's fair to say the Ukrainians are far behind on that in a sense. Um, and so training them, enabling them to have a program, not just a group of guys who know how to do triple CC is an important aspect. And going ahead, EOD or or even just kind of EOD light, knowing enough to avoid getting blown up is going to be a significant challenge because you know, remember, I mean, I, I was about to say, remember our trip today? It wasn't that long ago. I know you're getting, you're aging, but um, Andy and I uh, uh, went up to uh, Erpin and, uh, and Buka and recently, you know, the scene of some heavy fighting and uh, the place is littered with uh, cluster munitions. Um, I, we didn't see booby traps. We're told they're also booby traps. So the point is, you know, this, uh, not exaggerated. I mean, there's been a number of casualties up there after the fighting on the aftermath of fighting, um, from these sort of things. And we kind of saw, we had an inkling of why, right? Which made us very nervous. There's a, a kind of a habit here of kicking at things on the ground that any private in 29 Palms will tell you, um, will instantly have your platoon sergeant grabbing you by the trope. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a little worrying as basically everyone in uniform was picking up things or hopping in vehicles and there was some stuff that looked interesting, but I, I wasn't about to touch it. No, uh, no, no. But I, it, there's got to be a huge information campaign. I know you, you're, you were in touch with European command on a daily basis and I know they're, they're concerned about the unexploded ordnance and the IED threat. And there's got to be a huge information campaign teaching Ukrainians including the military, you know, what to be aware of, what to be cautious of. But then picking up, you know, the Ukrainians have been doing clever ambushes with laying mines to uh, restrict Russian movement, and those are going to have to be cleaned up. 
uh, you know, on the assumption the Russians are, don't pose another threat to Kiev, which some people think they might return. Uh, so, yeah. The question is when do you, this is a good question for you, Anna. When do you start cleaning up uh, ambush we, sites we, uh, north of Kiev? You, I mean, you have to do it now. You have to sign out because there's a uh, there's a compulsion. You could see it today. Andy and I were behind a, a long stream of cars flowing back into the northern suburbs. People want to return to their homes. You know, all of us can understand that. It's a visceral response. No one likes being a refugee. You, you want to get back home. And it's easy unless you've seen people injured by UXO, then it's very easy to kind of minimize the threat and imagine it doesn't, it isn't there, but it is very much there. So concurrent with, uh, you know, with the support for the fight as it goes ahead, focused now on the east, uh, has to be a comprehensive effort to clear up this UXO or civilians are going to continue to die in, uh, in these rear areas. Yeah, it was, what I found interesting that we went through, they took us through several areas, but the one main battle area was on a street in Bucha that uh, there were probably, what, 10 or 11 BTRs uh, and, uh, that had been destroyed by the Bayoktar drones. But they, it was almost surgical in the way they were able to destroy them on the street, but the houses on either side of the street, most of them weren't that badly damaged. No. You know, a couple of them... And, and the ones that were, it's Russian artillery. I mean, that kind of yeah. wasteland look around, that was, yeah. that was clearly artillery. Yeah. I mean, there the were clearly areas that were badly yeah. hit, but it was, I think the town... Doesn't need that much work, but it's the, it's the minefield and the unexploded ordnance that's going to be the real headache for that. And I would have to go down to 20 centimeters to make it uh, completely clear by UN standards, which, you know. That's going to, I mean, it's a staggering task and mm -hmm. absolutely astonishing. And you know, to Andy's point, the, um, I had never seen anything like that. I mean, we are talking catastrophic kills and, and you had to see these vehicles to understand what catastrophic kill meant. I mean, I remember seeing a, a track in, um, an Amtrak in uh, Nazareth that had been hit by A-10s and, and, uh, and it kind of peeled open like a sardine can. This was this looked even more devastated. I mean, there were T-72s with the turrets ripped off, uh, tracks um, torn off. I mean, it just eviscerated. And, uh, and I assume the crews were all just uh, incinerated inside the vehicles. Yeah. They, There's they, no way they could have. They, 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 I, I took some close-up pictures of the interiors. Uh, they, they had just being burned alive. I mean, there's nothing left of the, but they, they did. Well, it was interesting, but tragic. They had a burial site for the 300 people that the Russians had murdered, you know, just drunk. You know, they said what drunken. Yeah. Yeah. They got drunk. Like it was a sport and dragged them out and shot them. But, but, but they also had, there were four Russian tankers that they were just left on the side of the road and no one was touching them. You had journalists going up and taking pictures of them. And, uh, but they weren't going to, they were just going to leave them there to, uh, Vadim, our driver said we're leaving them for the Russians to come pick up because they don't pick up anybody. Yeah. And, uh, um, Vadim yeah. was, Vadim was from Irpin. He showed me, he pointed out his apartment to me, which he hadn't been back to because it had been shot up. And then his work place of work, which looked like it had uh, taken a few rounds as well. So, but he, he was, I got to say he was in great spirits. I, I took a terrific picture of him and I, and I sent it off to, Martin Savage at CNN, see if they can use it. But it was, he's a, a real character. You know Martin Savage at CNN? Well, I do now. Okay, excellent. I like that some photos I, I, I told him that I knew Andy Milburn, and all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> people are contacting me. But back to the Mozart room. So, you know, when I'm still talking about sustainable capability and when I'm talking about going into the offensive, we, you know, we've got to, we've got to up our game. And, um, you know, this is aspirational right now, but I want, hey, when I get, when I get to catch my breath, what I want to do is, is form a, uh, an influence cell 
uh, focus on Russian morale, you know, to the point of what, what Andy and I saw today, you know, Russian troops waiting to deploy should see, right? Hey, this is what happens when TB2 drones uh, attack a column of your tanks. I mean, I'm sure I know none of this stuff's been broadcast back. And the same thing with the, you know, the, the mass graves, but more focusing just on Russian military morale in country and perhaps families of them uh, in Russia. And if you think that sounds too cynical, it's better to do it that way, surely, than, you know, rely purely on, on kinetic action. So there's that aspect. But then there's also offensive, launching an offensive, uh, far more difficult, complex task than fighting kind of a squad size, series of squad size delaying defenses, which the Ukrainians did very well instinctively. Uh, but now they're, they're going to have to maneuver as battalions, uh, brigades, and even divisions and integrate combined arms. And, and the Russians, uh, defense is their strong point. You know, they lay reams of mines, they can mass artillery in, in minutes. And so, yes, I, I know I'm sounding pessimistic, uh, but I just think that we all need to be prepared for a long, you know, long drawn out slugging match. And from our point of view, we are constantly going to keep ourselves updated on Russian uh, techniques, tactics, and procedures and looking for uh, critical vulnerabilities at the same time, um, helping the Ukrainians plan uh, these operations going ahead. I think the thing that astounded me most, I, I didn't expect the war to happen because I didn't think the Russians would be so stupid. I, I'd served with the Ukrainians in Iraq and I know these guys uh, and I, I've been out to the front lines in Donbass uh, over the years and I've never seen a people pick up weapons as quickly uh, as they have. It was on my dawn in 2014, 2013, they just instinctively snapped to it. It was like Valley Forge on steroids. Um, and the first night I was, I went out to Maidan, I took vodka thinking Ukrainians, cold night vodka, you know, that's the missing element. And I got to Maidan, which is only a block from my apartment and they wouldn't let it, you on. they wouldn't let vodka on. They had a password. You had to have the password and you were forced to drink it. Yeah. <laughs> later on, but no, no, I mean, there was no alcohol. The level of discipline on Maidan was and the level of morale was just outstanding. And you see that right now across the country. And. I have, I have not met anyone in the country really since the second day of the war who thinks there's any chance they'll lose this war. But I do think in the South, there's a lot more room for maneuver. I don't think you've been down there yet, Andy, but uh, I was last April, I spent two weeks going around the South all the way from Romania up to Crimea to take a look around this wide open maneuver area for tanks. It's going to be a little tougher for squads to hide and to, to use their anti-tank weapons. But that said, that the Russians have proven so grossly incompetent in logistics and tactics. And I think it's the level of corruption that is throughout their society that they've just been stealing and lying about the standards uh, that it's now coming home to roost as to as just, just how incompetently. Yeah, I mean, you've seen on the videos of the, the ambushes they've had were in a complete, you know, uh, I think there was one with an armored regiment was taken out by a, a fairly well-executed Ukrainian, but good armies don't get caught in ambushes mm -hmm. like that. And they don't leave behind hundreds and hundreds of, of vehicles for lack of fuel. Mm -hmm. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's extraordinary. You know, what I find interesting is the fact that, you know, the Russian army has been vaunted by analysts has been, you know, I, I can't think of a number of articles I've read about how post, you know, post-invasion of Georgia in 2008 and Putin's mm -hmm. uh, Putin's reforms were really transforming the Russian army. But then, you know, and then everyone is very shocked and I'm not pretending to be wise now. I believe those analysts. But then I think, where do they get their information? 
because they don't hang out with the Russian army, they don't visit, it's not an open organization. They get their information from Russian leadership. <laughs> so, you know, and, uh, and so you've got a, you know, whatever brigade commander above and he's funneling cash into his own bank account or doing whatever. Um, of course his reports are going to be all rosy. Well, that's, I was talking to friends at UCOM and at NATO before the invasion, they were like, get out of there, get out of there. They're, you know, and I, and, you know, and this all this mantra about they've really reformed in the last seven years. And I, you don't reform a whole culture in, you know, in seven years, like, you know, and all the reports as to their expertise were, you know, I was looking for firsthand sources and all the sources were Russian generals, except for that one account of when your nemesis, the Wagner group got their, uh, got their asses handed mm-hmm. to them uh, against that special forces cell. Yeah. And that, that was just sheer madness. Um, so you got to worry why UCOM would think that the Russians would do so well when they have a, you know, they should really look at question how they do an analysis. Of course, you know, big budgets are always better for, for the military. Yeah. 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 Build up, uh, build up your enemy. I'm not suggesting it's as simple as that, but we certainly have to change how we get our information. There's a big crossover between like think tank analysis and intelligence. Right. And I think, um, we can't get to, you, we've got to look very, very hard at what our sources are going ahead. I mean, you know, I mean, the U.S. that we've gone through periods of our own recent history when the U.S. military has been over-vaunted. But, you know, there's that and there's, uh, I mean, th- we, we commonly do this. We, we commonly build up our, our enemy to be something he is, is not. And you think about the Iraqi army both times, right? I mean, well, not both times, but uh, yeah, the Gulf War uh, back when, you know, you were a lieutenant, Andy. Um, yeah, no, I, yeah, 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 that yeah, no, ago, yeah. Uh, but well, actually, I sat in the OPT when uh, when we were planning the 2003 invasion with one map. I was part of yeah. the OPT, and yeah, and I was uh, I, I was a reservist who came in, so I I, I wouldn't as up to so speed. Uh, your advice all the way through, but they but the the assumptions they were making, I was like, are we we're really that that sure of what we're doing? Yeah. And, and that's right, the Republican God. We're, you know, we're going to fight to the death. Well, I remember G- General Hagee came in because uh, he was one FCG at the time. And they actually, there were six Iraqi divisions on the, on the Iranian border and the Marines were going to go straight up and they were going to hold those divisions back with air. And, uh, Lieutenant Colonel in charge of the OPT says, okay, if those divisions start moving West, what happens? And Hagee just, Hagee just says, if they move, they die. And I just thought, you know, coming from a four star, those are, those are pretty powerful, uh, you know. Yeah, for what's but it t- turned out to be true. Yeah, you know? well, I mean, how it, really you think about it, it just couldn't have been any other way, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but the but my point was, I remember them. In fact, that's why I, as a very junior second lieutenant, straight out of IOC, was sidetracked to a casualty replacement company in Twenty Nine Palms because they did expect to take, mm. you know, number. I remember there were estimates, you know, thirty thousand or more casualties, and they did expect to, to you know, on the U.S. side. Uh, and it was a failure of intelligence, basically. Well, I had, when I was at business school during the, uh, the 92 of the Desert Storm invasion, I got activated for that and, uh, sent over to the Philippines uh, to guard the bars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that's but, very, that's probably the best place for you during but, the war. But that was, that was cloud. As my, long as the war's not in the yeah, Philippines. <laughs> yeah. The Philippines was safe. Yeah. But, uh, but I had a business school classmate who'd been in the National Security Agency and he, confidentially took me aside and, and just said, Hey, you, you should know that they've already ordered a hundred thousand coffins, uh, for us troops. hundred thousand. That's what he said. Yeah. 
I don't believe that. That's extraordinary. That's very pessimistic. But you know, like anything, the defense industry, the coffin makers, it was probably you couldn't buy less than 100,000. But if you bought 100,000, then you get another coffin makers lobby spray. Yeah, hold on. 20,000 free. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of which, let's talk about equipment, Andy. What is going wrong with equipment? I didn't mean to sound, make that sound accusing, but why? This is a rhetorical question, but please try and answer it. You know, we read in the papers about all the money that is going, the U.S. is spending on the war here in the Ukraine. We, meet, we read about or that the flow of supplies, logistics, everything from javelins to, you know, the British end law, which the economist said the other day was, you know, how a British weapon enabled the Ukrainians to win the war. Um, which is surprisingly hyperbolic for the economists, right? I mean, it's certainly, it's a, it's a useful weapon, but it, but it's just one of many. But anyway, and yet when we go to the front line, uh, well, no, no, I, let me step back there. I don't want to pretend that we've been on the front line. When we go and talk to units on the front line, they seem to be short of everything, even the good units and the good units may be better off as far as body armor and helmets, but they still lack you know, everything from individual first aid kits, um, night vision goggles, uh, secured radios, secure yeah. radio. I mean, it's amazing. So they are using what cell phones and walkie talkies, right? right? A lot of them are cell phones. I think yeah. the Russians are using cell phones too. Um, yeah. you know, well, I, that's, I, that's good. I think there's radio, the, the radio electronic warfare is pretty uh, robust, but uh, you know, at the squad level, no one's listening to that, yeah. you know, but there's a, it's huge right now The the price of, uh, you know, body armor has gone, you know, up fourfold as everyone struggles to get it for, you know. And it's all volunteers trying to get it for their families and friends and everyone's competing for the same small market. It, it's, you know, there's people who are, who are taking advantage of that, but there are other people who are trying to make it work. And I think it'll, in a couple more weeks, the price of body armor will come back down and they're, we're helping a group in Lviv, the Lviv defense cluster. They're making heavy steel plate body armor, uh, which is good for the territorial defense force. It's not, you know, a strategic maneuver element, but, uh, and it's also good for the economy. Um, we're trying to avoid, you know, the price gouging or, or getting screwed by the price gougers on, on the better stuff, but we're also trying to source that. But there's a deep need for the technology that the U.S. has, but it's the bureaucracy that is involved in that, you know, in terms of, you know, ITAR and foreign military sales and what authority needs. And then if you're bringing it into Ukraine, you have to fly it to Poland who needs a transfer agreement for you to bring it in. And it's just the, the bureaucrats are, are having a field day and it's not, it's not anyone's particular fault. I don't blame anyone. I, I think we just have a very, we have a lot of these entrenched, a lot of it is just the, you know, entrenched type of regulations. And frankly, I don't think the United States has a very agile supply, logistic supply system. No, I, it, it's, yeah, I, well, I remember in, uh, what, in 2003, I was at Camp Doha, the logistics base with the Ukrainian, and uh, it was a miracle of to see what America can do when we want to. We set up that base in a matter of months, and I was astounded at what we got. Uh, you know, it's one of those few things, you know, not one of the few things, one of the most impressive things I've seen our government do is to do logistics, and we, you know, complete with McDonald's and Starbucks. Uh, it was really astounding, and, and then six months later, it was gone, and it was just desert again. So we can do that, you know, but I think right now there's probably a little too much bureaucracy going on, but I also think there's some policy issues which are not decided correctly. There's not enough decisiveness probably coming from the White House, but I'm, I'm guessing on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say, I mean, it's a, it is definitely, and, and you know me, I mean, I've attacked both parties equally, um, but, but definitely, uh, 
a, another policy faux pas here. You know, so a few good things, but a lot of bad things, a lot of things being said. And I'll give you an example, uh, reading in the, in the papers, I saw that article that U.S. troops, oh, that's right. It was, uh, Secretary Austin being asked, mm -hmm. right? Um, are U.S. troops training Ukrainians? And as he normally does, you know, he was like, well, I don't know. Don't really know. Um, but then someone in DOD, I know that sounds vague, but they, they, the answer, the answer that came out of DOD was yes. 10th group special forces are training Ukrainians. Interestingly enough, the next day I just happened to be talking about drone training, blah, blah, blah. Um, who's going to provide what? Because we in the Mozart group do provide trainers for drones for Ukraine. We're going to talk about trainer drones in a moment in an exciting way. But the point is, yes, 10th group are receiving are what well, they're receiving training from other Americans. And the intent is for them to train Ukrainians. But I think the issue is, and what I'm told. Uh, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Ukrainians don't really see it as practical. And I think there's probably an, an, an emotional, uh, visceral part about leaving their country to go to Poland to train um, at the height of a war, even though it's not that much further away than Lviv. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't understand why the United States is not sending those people into into Ukraine. Well, yeah. Why? You know, the embassy Lviv is benign. The embassy well, fled quicker than, you know, than anybody. They were the first out the door. Even the topless Ukrainian protesters were there, you know, making fun of them as they left. They burned, they burned all the facilities to make what? sure. Yeah, you know, they, they, uh, they torched all the documents. They, I mean, you know, the embassy was never under threat here. Uh, so th that's a bizarre question. Yeah, there's, there's definitely the threshold for risk is ridiculously high and I'm not just simply spouting that, but, and, and so you get these, uh, these, uh, dilemmas that make no sense. Well, for instance, we were getting, I, we got multiple reports from general officers in Europe and us about Russian saboteurs hitting, uh, Ukrainian convoys. And that was the holdup with supplies. And I just made, or we made the trip together from, Lviv. Yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, there was gas stations were fine. Everything was fine. A lot of security, a lot of block posts, no Russian saboteurs hitting anybody. In fairness, I think our reputation had preceded us. Uh, yeah, fair point. Uh, fair uh, Russian, they, if you're a, if you're a, you know, Russian saboteur with any sense of self-preservation, you do not, you do not, you do not ambush a car with two Marine colonels, aging Marine colonels. <laughs> but there's a, bottle there, of vodka. there's a lot of bad information, a lot of disinformation. I, and, uh, um. Uh, and, and, you know, also, I think the COVID kept, uh, all the human activity that diplomats and, and spies or whoever engage in, I think, yeah. I think they put the kibosh on all that. So all the connections were lost and you have turnover and staff and now they don't know anybody because it, the, the new crew never had a chance to meet anybody. Yeah. So not surprisingly, they don't know what's going on. Yeah. Let's, um, let's just talk quickly about drones. We did talk about the, the TB2. Um, so when we talk about equipping the Ukrainians, what is the problem with drones, Andy? Because I'm playing the role of, well, I, you know, it, listening to the Ukrainians, the, the, the big problem is, are one, not being able to do anything against the Russian drones, which are spotting artillery for them. Uh, they're too far away to shoot and they're, and they're too small to do anything with a stinger or an anti-air uh, weapon. But, uh, you know, what the Ukrainians need, they have these Chinese drones and this is interesting. Because the Chinese are actively dismantling some recognition signals in the in the chips in the uh, in the drones they're selling to the Ukrainians, and they're not doing it to the Russians. Apparently, there's a chip that allows drones of the same DJI family to recognize other drones, but they're dismantling that within the other within the Ukrainians. It's a it's it's 
there's been, it's been on Ukrainian, you know, news a little bit, but it's, uh, it's an active measure of the Chinese to support the Russians against the Ukrainians. Yeah. You know, and, and so what we in the, uh, in the Mozart group are doing are trying to buy drones that are offline. So what that means is that they are not online. I learned this, uh, as you can. <laughs> you, 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 you always think if you took the technical course yeah. at IOC. Yeah. <laughs> so offline means, yeah, they, I guess they don't, you know, operate off Wi-Fi or whatever. And they, it's so much harder to jam or interfere with, um, and, and various other things, you know, I mean, you, it's much harder to uh, geolocate the, the launcher, the, the controller, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but these things are expensive, you know, for a, a just like, a, a type one drone that flies with a range of 10 kilometers. I mean, you were paying. 20,000 or more dollars and for a larger type two, I'm sorry to use technical terms, but you know, 30 kilometers or more, you're paying anything from, uh, well, about anything up to half a million dollars. So the burn rate on donations is pretty quickly, is pretty quick. But I tell you what, just real quick, the reason why drones are so important is they extend the kill chain. And we have been, we in the US military, this is one interesting thing. The Ukrainians are ahead of us in the U.S. military understanding this down at the lowest possible level. And, and you know, I've, you know, I work with uh, the conventional Marines on 29 Palms. The Marine Rifle Squad is no more lethal than it was when Andy Bain was a second lieutenant some, <laughs> you know, many, many, many years ago. Uh, I mean, it really isn't. I mean, the, the weapon systems, right? Because it's more of a cultural faux pas. It's a, it's a gap. No one has uh, realized that and until... You give a Marine rifle squad, uh, longer distance sensors so they can really see out, uh, further in front of them. Uh, but also the means to kill whatever is out in front of them. Uh, then you, you know, you're really not in the 21st century. Uh, the Ukrainians understand that. And that's why not only do they use drones as sensors, but they adapt them, uh, just like simple quadcopters, uh, attach RPG sevens to them with a ingenious little adapter. And, um, and use them as strike drones, you know, even down at the squad level. So uh, inherently, you know, to your point, Andy, there's something embedded in national culture that makes, that makes them understand some of the kind of principles of, of modern war, uh, that, that Americans are struggling well, with. Well, Ukraine produces more, uh, software engineers in any country in Europe, at least. And, uh, it's a, it may be the second most of any country in the world, yeah. uh, maybe after Israel or something like, well, mm -hmm. I think they produce more engineers than Israel has every year. Yeah. But the, so they're very technically sophisticated and, uh, doing a lot of interesting things on the, with the hacking and software, which I'm not even aware of. I hear, you know, scraps of what they're doing and it's, it's, you know, well beyond my level of comprehension on the, uh, you know, hacking side of things, but, uh, they do, you, you know, We've been to these battalions where they have labs doing, you know, 3D printers, putting tail fins on RPG rounds to put on a, on a small drone. Tell them about the V-bits. The yeah. Yeah. V -bits. Yeah. They, so, they, well, first they, they do an RPG round with a, with a plastic tail fin that they, they do. And then they put it on a little drone, carry it over a, a tank that's parked and drop it on the, on the guys who are hanging out outside. They, uh, great footage of that. But then they have these little, uh. In the parks here in, in Ukraine, I, I don't know if they do them in the States, I, they probably do somewhere, but the, you know, they have these little places you can go and you, your two or three year old kid can get in a little car and drive around and not go too fast. And they've taken those and they've turned them into, uh, um, you know, vehicle born, uh, ladies. Yeah. IDs that, uh, 
you know, they, they just keep them off the side of a road looking innocent. And when a column comes by, they can, you know, from afar, drive it right under a tank, you know, and, and, and initiate an ambush or just take out one element. But very, you know, all very clever and very, very cheaply done. Um, but it's typical of a partisan type, you know, warfare where they're taking what they have and, and making hell out of for the enemy. You know, one thing to that point, it's made me think, um, there's a, a British historian, Max Hastings, and um, he excited some controversy when he writes about the Second World War because he pops some myths. And his point was, you know, man to man, the German soldier was better than his British and US counterparts. And he makes an interesting observation. He says, but we should be pleased of that because it meant that, you know, our democracies have evolved more. And, and I've, so, I've heard that, but, yeah. but, they, but the Marines were were better. I oh, also heard it. No, I honestly heard that. Um, I honestly but, heard that. But, uh, but you, you know, and, and so I think there's an element of truth in that. I mean, you, Ukraine's history has been very, very tough history. It's a, the climate is tough. It's been the scene of great barbarity, right? I mean, they've been overrun for the last couple hundred years. They've been overrun left and right, uh, east to west, and they've always lost. This is, this is, the Cossacks. this is interesting because they have not lost and they're not being overrun. And I think it, it, yeah. it you know, it's, it's very much, this is a very much a landmark war. Hey, let me, let me ask you something because you are an old Ukraine hand. So my impression in 2014, uh, with Crimea and the Donbass is that the Ukrainian army did not put up a good fight. Is that no, true? no, that you're incorrect for the most part on that. In Crimea, the, 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 the the phenomenon of the little green men confused a lot of people. Yeah. And so no one put up a fight and they just sort of took everything over because no one knew what really was going on. Yeah. But then Very when clever. it, when it got into a, into battle in, uh, in the East, in Donetsk and Lugansk, they, the Russians actually took about twice as much land as they had up until the war because the Ukrainians were able to muster and counterattack and take the land back. And there are actually some case studies on some of the, uh, armor raids they did that are quite astounding. So in this war or back in 2014? 2014. Oh, right. 2014, okay. which, which is, Oh, okay. So they did drive them back. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they took back right. half the land that the Russians were able to take, oh. which given how much the Russians intelligence had crippled the military with corrupt ministers and cor the corrupt president, all doing Russia's bidding was quite astounding that yeah. they were able to do that. I mean, there's a world, there's all kinds of things to learn about hybrid warfare, regular warfare, mm -hmm. um, from the history of this country from 2014 till now. You know what I mean? It, well, it, that, it, the way that they are waging war is, it, is it, by our standards, or, I mean, by our, yeah, irregular warfare, but it is, it is the face of modern warfare. You know, th that distinction between conventional and regular just no longer makes sense. If it ever did. Uh, well, yeah, I, I'd say nothing. I wouldn't say anything's really changed. Just the life has gotten more complicated. And so there are more areas to fight in, but. I do, I do think that, uh, it's important to, to back up and look, okay, who is Putin fighting? And he's not just fighting Ukraine. He's been fighting the United States and he's been corrupting our institutions. He's acting the way a mafia boss would or an aggressive businessman. I mean, you know, Procter and Gamble's an aggressive business. They see an open market. They go for it. Yeah. Um, and you know, a, a mafia Don sees an empty neighborhood. He goes then takes the neighborhood. And that's what Putin's doing. He, he he expands or he dies, and he doesn't plan on dying. So he's he is doing everything. You know, he can't fight the United States head on militarily, but he's corrupting our institutions. He's doing disinformation. Their whole military doctrine is now more uh, focused. Eighty percent of their efforts up until you know February were were based on disinformation and information warfare. Yeah, yeah. You know, to that point, when we talk about influence operations, it, I mean, think about this. So the Russian 
soldier in country or waiting to come in country is a very clear, persuadable target, right? The Russian population, not so much because they are almost hermetically sealed information-wise. Yeah, there's, there's a real, we've, we've looked at this and, and, uh, and how do you reach these people? And it, it's difficult. They're shut off the internet. They're, you know, they're shutting down sites and, and actually different internet platforms are taking off advertising or ways you would have yeah. out of sanctions, you know, um, they don't want anything to do with the Russians. And so they're shutting down the ways you, people would have of reaching them. But so. it's a very, I mean, if the, if the media is to be believed, there's a very interesting demographic divide between those who just uh, swallow the party line, hook, line, and sinker, and those who don't, you know, and it's young and old, mm -hmm. right? So um, I was listening to a BBC interview with a Russian student. He was saying, oh, you know, my parents are like pro-pro-Putin, but they watch TV. You know, they're not internet yeah. people. Um, they get their news that way, which is, and they always have, you know, I mean, they, and they were alive in the Soviet Union. So, you know, one, one hopes that, uh, you know, the truth is disseminating at least through a, a significant portion of the Russian population. But then the second part of this question is, does that matter? You know, what can they do? Yeah, you remember about how much anti-war stuff there was going on, Vietnam and in Iraq, Cindy Sheehan and all that. None of it mattered, you know. Yeah. And I'm sure the Russians were like, oh, look, at they're falling apart. Yeah. And we see tidbits like that and we think, oh, they're falling apart. I think it, what really matters is can the sanctions stop production of missiles that are bombing, yeah. you know, bombing Ukraine. I think the Russians are tactically stopped. They're not going to be able to do much. They can bomb from a distance. And but that doesn't solve the problem, right? Because they have to be evicted now. The only way there's going to be peace is with, and I'm, I'm a fairly firm believer in this, that three things that need to happen for there to be real peace is Putin out, Dead. the dismantlement of the security services, and denuclearization. Mm. Because without those, you you're just have, you have a ceasefire. Yeah. You could have a very long ceasefire, but it's not peace. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I mean, it seems to me that anything short of a return to pre-war uh, is is a defeat for the Ukrainians. I think I think at this stage. I mean, strategically, yeah, the Russians have I, lost a lot of dudes. I, I think at this stage they have to take back their territory to include Donbass, but and, yeah, but probably at, not Crimea. At least Crimea's, Don, at least yeah. Donbass, and I don't know if Crimea is a step too far or not. You know, you don't drop your claim to it, of course. But tactically, I, I haven't. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's uh, yeah, that's a high bar. But it, it, if the U.S. would start giving planes, that it, then you might have a better a better chance. Anyway, I want to thank our host Andy Milborn of the Mozart Group, who is doing great things. It's and got a ring to it. He's right. he's seeking donors to help advise and train the Ukrainian military in the ways of war. Go to our website, please, www.themozartgroup.com. And if you, if you want to just, if you just want to buy equipment, go to ukrafreedomfund.org and give us money. In all seriousness, one thing we both, you know, although we go by Colonel Lethal and Colonel Not Lethal um, in Ukrainian, but one thing that we both do is uh, take very seriously um, ensuring that there is a direct line from funds donated to capability, uh, you know, equipment in the hands of uh, frontline Ukrainian troops who know how to use it. Yeah. Well, hopefully next next uh, episode, is that what they call podcast episode? Yeah, yeah. This, since this is our first, I'm thinking we should have whiskey and we should have maybe a guest. Yeah. Okay. Since we're in Ukraine, let's find a Ukrainian guest. Yeah. Hey, you know who'd be a perfect guest? Daniel. Oh, he'd be a good guest. He'd be perfect. Yeah, let's get Daniel. 
and he's willing to brave all the shell fire that, that we braved to get here to the studio tonight in central Kiev. Yeah, it was dreadful. We, I heard the sirens today. It was, uh, you know. Everyone, uh, great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.